Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. This is all about the scaffolding around decisions because at some point when I'm not here anymore, I want to leave behind a different way of coming to decisions about economic policy, which is more robust, uh, more reliant on the evidence and which rebuilds trust in our democracy more broadly. Hello, lovely people of podcasts. Welcome to the new political year. God help us all. Uh, I'm Catherine Murphy and you're on Australian Politics and uh, I don't know what I just trod on in the pod cave then, but anyway, no one hurt, I don't think. And with me for the first episode of the year, I'm delighted to say, long-time friend of the pod, (laughs) (laughs) the treasurer, Jim Chalmers, has joined me. Welcome, uh, well, welcome to the new year, Jim. First cab off the rank. Are you honoured? It's a privilege. I am actually honoured. It's great to be back. (laughs) Well, there's lots of reasons why uh, Jim would be my first interview of the year, because obviously anybody following the news knows there is an enormous amount happening in uh, his economic hemisphere as treasurer. But the principal reason I have brought him uh, into the pod cave for the first uh, chat of the year is because he's written an essay for the monthly, which is uh, about to come out. When does it come out? It comes out on Monday, officially. Monday. Okay. Uh, but you hear word around the traps about uh, copies appearing uh, here and there. But Monday is the official day, uh, the the uh, 30th of January. Okay. Then so it hits the newsstands on Monday, but I imagine a number of us will be, well, I don't have to imagine this conversation you'll be listening to on Saturday morning and there'll be a fair bit of news around, I think, pointing to the Treasurer's arguments in this piece. Now, I'll just start with a slightly inside baseball question, but you and I will enjoy it. Um, what is it about Queensland right-wingers in the market? <laughs> It's the new. It's the newsletter for us. Um, Catherine's referring there, of course, to uh, uh, almost to the day actually, fourteen years before my essay appeared. Uh, Kevin Rudd's appeared about the global financial crisis, yep. and I think in two thousand and twelve there was a Wayne Swan essay. There was indeed. But the last the last politician to write an essay for the monthly was actually Penny Wong. Uh, oh. In I think two thousand and sixteen, she wrote about marriage equality. Uh, so it goes, it goes Rudd, Swan, Wong, Chalmers, which uh, <laughs> trods on your argument a little yeah, bit. Yeah, interregnum, interregnum, one, one South Australian left winger. Anyway, I, I'm sort of being slightly facetious, obviously, but I, I pose the question, as Jim has said, really, I suppose, to plot a bit of a continuum. Now, let's leave Penny's marriage equality piece out because it doesn't really suit my purposes, Jim, so let's just set that to one side. <laughs> Sorry, Penny. <laughs> It's all right, she'll forgive us. So obviously Rudd wrote his essay. Now, this was at the the sort of the beginning of the sequence of crises 
which you're now also embroiled in managing, right? So that was post-global financial crisis. Uh, Wayne Swan's essay uh, was just a sort of ball of fury about his response to, let's call it, his fury at greed being good, allegedly, right? There was a sort of plutocrats and concentration of power and, and what was wrong about capitalism's quite a strident piece. Uh, yours, I think, in terms of the sort of metaphor of, you know, do we burn the village or renovate the village? I think you're probably in renovation territory in terms of what you're saying about capitalism and uh, and the system and, you know, the sort of interplay between capitalism and democracy, right? More mm. renovate than burn to the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't you, rather than me telling the listeners what you've said, why don't you take them through the central arguments that you're making in the piece? Yeah, well, I think your starting point's the the perfect one, you know, which is to recognise, as the essay does, that in the last 15 years or so, we've had three big economic crises. And the first was the global financial crisis became a demand shock in the in the economic jargon. Uh, the pandemic became a supply shock. It messed with our supply chains. And what we're going through now is this big kind of global inflation shock where interest rates are going up and that's putting a lot of pressure on his quote was about, you know, no man steps in the same river twice because it's not the same river and he's not the same man. And I use that because to try and recognise that the three big crises are all different. They've all warranted different kinds of responses, uh, but they've all made us in one way or another, our society or our economy more vulnerable. Uh, and the other thing that unites them is that I think broadly there hasn't been the kind of learning about these crises that we want to see. And so one of my big frustrations as someone who cares deeply about the state of our economy, but also the state of our society, and you and I have known each other a long time, you know that I've always been trying to work out how do we nicely line up our economic objectives and our objectives in our society. Yep. And I feel like the big lesson out of those three crises over a decade and a half uh, is that we need to do that much better. I think particularly in Australia over the last decade, you know, governments have pretended that there's some kind of false choice between doing the right thing by the economy and doing the right thing by Mm. our society. Uh, And in the process of pretending it's a choice between one or the other, they've kind of delivered on neither. And so the essay is really about how do we line up our values with our budgets, with our economy in a lot of meaningful ways, but principally when it comes to cleaner energy, principally when it comes to how do we make technology work for people, not against them? And also how do we get investment, public investment and private investment flowing to those areas that we really care about, housing, the energy transition, all of these sorts of ways. And so that's largely what the essay is about. And it it tries to take on, there's a heap of pessimism in the global economy right now. There's a lot that does and should worry us about the conditions in the global economy. But I've tried to write it in an optimistic way that says the future is bright so long as we learn from what has been a pretty torrid 15 years or so. Mm. Now, you sort of um, make the case for values-based capitalism, and that is sort of a, I guess, the, in, in the many iterations of Labor governments over the last century, there's been different versions of different of values-based capitalism depending on the times, right? But I, I want you to drill down into that a little bit further because obviously you know, it's sort of not a, it's not a binary, is it? Capitalism, you know, is valueless or has values. There are always values embedded in it. I mean, neoliberalism is a set of values embedded in capitalism. Mm. So when you talk about values-based capitalism, what are you getting at? Mm. Well, let me put it this way. Um, 
One of the things that I love most about this job that I've got right now is you meet a lot of people from the, the global investor community and the Australian investor community. And what you learn from spending time with them is that there is a view about their role and a view about the role of the economy, which is not always represented on the front pages of the financial press. Mm. Uh, and, you know, in the piece I talk about uh, Mark Carney, yep. uh, incredible guy, been the central bank governor in two countries mm. uh, and really a genuine thought leader that I've, who I've been able to spend a little bit of time with, and a guy here in Australia called Michael Traylon. They are representative, I think, of this view of people who are, who move in quite conservative circles yep. Yep. who have in one way or another come to the realisation that, you know, you can keep the wheels of the capitalist economy turning in a way that satisfies some of our social objectives. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's really kind of what I'm trying to do with these investor roundtables I'm putting together and what I'm trying to do in housing and what we're trying to do as a government in energy and what we'll turn our mind to with data and digital and the intersection of critical minerals and advanced manufacturing, all of these sorts of things where we've got these big constraints in the budget. Uh, collaboration is the only way we're going to achieve our big economic objectives. And it's really heartening that when you spend time with people, people are looking for ways to do some good. Mm. You know, one of the reasons why I have an optimistic view about humankind is because I genuinely believe that even in um, quite conservative circles, people are looking for a way to satisfy their financial objectives in the same way at the same time as we satisfy our social objectives and our responsibilities to each other, our obligations to each other. And so that's how I see values-based capitalism. How do we nicely line up and neatly line up what we're trying to do in the economy, uh, what the private sector needs to do in the economy to generate the kind of returns and wealth creation that creates jobs and opportunities. Uh, how do we line all of that up with our objectives, our national objectives? And I feel like COVID in particular, but really each of these three crises that we've been talking about over the last decade and a half, it kind of feels like each of those has given us the big hint mm. uh, that we can do things a little bit differently, as you said, not to burn the thing down and try and rebuild it. I mean, the Prime Minister has talked about, you know, reform, not revolution. Yep. I think there are really obvious and quite meaningful ways that we can just neatly line these things up. And look, I I, uh, I think I said to you at one point that I had met Michael Trail a couple of years ago and he is a genuinely interesting person. Uh and, you know, has been doing interesting stuff for quite a period of time in this space that you're talking about. But when you sort of talk about constraints in the budget, I mean, look, Jim, you're a very clear communicator, but I think there will be some people listening to the podcast who don't really understand exactly what you mean. What you mean is uh, we've got high debt and deficit, we've got a pool of national savings and, and other um, you know, pools of money for investment sitting there, possibly underutilised in terms of these these values based social objectives that you're talking about. So it's a matter of it's a matter of building a bridge between these interests. Yeah. I mean, I know what you mean, but I, I guess I wonder how you deploy this at scale. Yeah, it's sort of like I can see a bunch of worthy pilots that you might be able to do as a government. We've seen it already with superannuation and housing. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there will be opportunities in the energy transition for similar things, mm -hmm. but I guess I struggle to see how you how you do this at scale, and in order to sort of actualise what you're talking about, right, which is change the system so that the system rewards good as well as profit. How do you actually build it at scale? 
Well, I think the key ingredient there, which hasn't always been there, is a is a genuine sense of collaboration. And if the the argument that sits behind your question is that there's no easy way to go from how things are to how things mm. uh, how I want things to be quickly, then of course that's true. Mm. Uh, and we've talked on other occasions about you know why our aspiration is to be a long term government is because you, you need to build some momentum, you need to lock down the ways we think about this differently. But I, I think at its core, the reason why I mentioned the state of the budget and the reason why I I'm looking for other ways to satisfy our economic objectives is just because I feel that there's a real window of opportunity here. Mm. In the the essay, I call it our big challenge and our big chance, is before we forget the kind of um, lessons from those three crises that we keep coming back to, before we forget about them before we lose this opportunity, we really to get the ball rolling on a different kind of capitalism, which doesn't compromise, you know, the wealth generating, profit generating role that is legitimate and and, uh, encouraged for the private sector, but to work out what do we care about as a country? You know, we care about a cleaner economy. We care about, you know, having a, a bigger and broader industrial base. We care about being able to house people near where the jobs and opportunities are being created. And I feel like some of these steps that we've already taken that you refer to, particularly on housing, I see that you know if we can make them work, you build some momentum. Mm. And that's at its core really what I'm trying to do. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, you know, to pay due respect to your concept, it's sort of like, you know, there has been this sea change in business, which is sort of partly to do with sort of the overhang of crises, partly to do with the fact that everybody's actually got to take the energy transition seriously now because capital has made its choice about, you know, how this is going to pan out. I I agree there's a well there to tap. I guess I just don't know, you know, how quickly you can you can tap it. Yep. And and the other question I've Fair. got, because, you know, like Eeyore here, um, I really <laughs> <laughs> sorry, she's back, guys. Uh, the other question I would have about it too is I just want to, at a personal level, congratulate you for taking the time to sit down to compose 6,000 words to think about big ideas and try and articulate them, right, because not enough of that happens in Australian politics. So I just want to say thank you. It's good. But it's sort of also, though, I look at your job as you deal with inflation running at north of 8%, rising interest rates, you're going to chase the, the states basically down the street for the next six months to try and line up these energy rebates that you that you, in order to give people price relief, right? That's quite the image, isn't it? Well, Me chasing Tim Pallas down well, well, uh, Collins Street I, I, I just You heard it here first, guys. <laughs> you heard it. It's going to happen. Just watch, right? So they're all bandwidth issues, right? You've also got to produce your second budget in one financial year, right? It's sort of like much and all as, you know, big sky dreaming is important and I have congratulated you with absolute sincerity and uh, I'm just wondering how the hell when your job is basically crisis management now, right? Like that's the bequest of the last 10 years, crisis management. That's what that's all we do here. Mm. Um, you know, how you get the bandwidth to try and actually shift the fundamentals of something. Well, I hope it's okay that I disclose this, um, but I remember when I was talking to you when you were writing your big, brilliant quarterly essay. Well, that's that's uh, more than kind. Thank you. <laughs> and everyone, I'm sure every uh, listener's already read it, but if not, check it out. Um, and I remember when we were talking about that 
and you go through these kind of cycles, which is it's a great idea when you sign up. You know, you curse it at some midpoint. Yeah. And then when it's finished, you're pleased you did it. Yeah. Um, and you're even pleased for the people who, you know, people read it and maybe didn't like it, people who did like it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there are interim steps where, you know, today you I tweeted a photo of the cover and said, check it out on Monday and you know, all the trolls come in. You think, why do I bother? Um, but I'm pleased I did it. And we only got commissioned in the middle of December. Mm-hmm. And our deadline was early in January. Mm, uh, and thanks to the wonderful Katie Gallagher, I had a break over Christmas. Mm. And I ummed and ahed about whether or not to do it. And in the end, I thought it's not an opportunity you can really say no to, partly because of that history that you mm. began with, but more than that. Uh, and the reason I'm pleased I did it, even though there were a few kind of quite late nights, is because we all need an opportunity to take a little step back yeah. and work out where everything fits. And I'm proud of it. Mm. I'm pleased I did it. It was a it was a sprint, but in the end, you know, I read it now and some people will like it and some people will hate it and that's fine too. And some people will say, weren't you spending your time in another way? And I understand and accept that too. Um, but I'm, I'm pleased I did it. I'm proud of it. And I hope people get something out of it because then the, the time that I spent on it would be worth it. Mm, no, no, well, I would never say to you, why did you spend time on that rather than something else? I would never say that to you. And what I said to you was, thank you for doing it. But I guess my concern is how you get the bandwidth to do the things you want to do. And I mean, it's kind of the story of Labor governments, isn't it? Yeah. Well, okay. I see, I see what you did there, Murph. Um, yeah. Yes, to the extent that uh, no government arrives on day one and can write the story completely of the first of their first term in office. Mm. Um, and I think one of the benefits of having a prime minister with as much experience as ours does is he he appreciates that. I think. And so what we try and do is we know what the things we really care about delivering are. You know, in my patch, we care about wages growth. We care about cost of living relief. We care about inflation moderating. All these sorts of things are pretty clear. Um, and so you, you're finding room to try and deliver on your objectives and bed down the policies that you're committed to and all of those sorts of things. But uh, it's only realistic to understand that a lot of your time will be spent fighting fires as well. Mm. Uh, inflation is the fire in the economy right now in the way that, you know, it was the pandemic for my predecessor yeah. and for an earlier predecessors, uh, including uh, Wayne and others, it was a global financial crisis. There is an element of firefighting. Um, but we need to find ways as a as a system and the people within the system, we need to find ways to take a little step back and work out where everything fits and absent this opportunity to write this essay, I don't, I don't know if I would have done much of that mm. uh, over the break, so I'm grateful to the opportunity. Yeah, and please don't conclude from this line of questioning that I think you've wasted your time and it's all silly. I don't think that at all. Um, you know, the starting point was, you know, not enough thinking happens, like big picture planning, but it's, yeah, I just sort of look at the next six months and just I scratch my head, I do. But uh, anyway, uh, there's just one more thing about the essay, actually, that I want to tease out before we get on to the next six months quickly. And um, 
it's interesting, part of the retooling of the um, economic systems that you talk about uh, relates to the clean energy transition and to obviously disclosure about, mm. you know, climate impacts of various yep. investments, et cetera. That's all really interesting. What can we expect on that really over the next little bit? Yeah, so I'm I'm doing a heap of consulting right now on on meaningfully changing the way that companies report their climate risks, but also their decarbonisation plans and all the rest of it. Because when you when you talk to a lot of big investors, particularly big institutional investors, one of their frustrations is they want to invest in the right places, but they don't have a reliable, consistent way across different investment opportunities to work out which is. Uh, the thing that aligns best with their values. Mm-hmm. And so there's a heap of work going on. Some some companies are actually quite good at doing it, but I want to make it consistent, world's best practice. So I'm hoping to, I think that consultation period ends quite soon. And mm-hmm. so uh, that'll be a meaningful change, I think. But, but where it fits in is if you care about this values-based capitalism, uh, you care about lining up, you know, what we care about with our economy and our society, uh, then you've got to make sure that the market scaffolding is right, and this is an important part of that, but also the economic institutions are right. You know, I, I care deeply about the day-to-day outcomes in the economy and how it affects real people in real communities, but part of my job as well is making sure the scaffolding around that is right as well. And so if we care about getting these kinds of outcomes, energy, uh, making technology work for people, you know, making sure that growth is stronger, but also more inclusive and more sustainable, all of these kinds of objectives, then you've got to get the market design right. You've also got to get the institutions right. And there's a big part in the essay, which I hope people kind of grapple with as I did in, in writing it, which is to say, One of the reasons we need to strengthen our economy is to strengthen our democracy. There is a very clear link between economic failure and democratic failure, which which should trouble us. Um, And so strengthening the economy is a way to strengthen our democracy. To strengthen our economy, we need to strengthen the institutions. That's why I'm doing a heap of work on the Reserve Bank. I'm going to do a heap of work on the Productivity Commission. Mm. All of these other things, intergenerational report, wellbeing budget, measuring what matters. This is all about the scaffolding around decisions because at some point when I'm not here anymore, Mm. I want to leave behind a different way of coming to decisions about economic policy, uh, which is more robust, uh, more reliant on the evidence, and which rebuilds trust in our democracy more broadly. And there's also, I mean, what you, I'm, I'm so glad you foregrounded that because I didn't, and it's important, but also part of this is not only transparency and, and looking at these institutions, it's also what you measure. Yeah, for de- sure. Determines where your priorities are, yeah. right? And that's sort of, that's an interesting concept for people to wrap their heads around, right? If we prioritise wellbeing, which is one of the objectives of the government and other governments have sort of been down this path, then you're actually measuring different things. Yeah. And the the big thing I think for your listeners to understand about that is, you know, people who want to who want to criticise this broader approach to measuring what matters and this approach to well-being, people who are critics of that, they want to pretend uh, dishonestly that it's a choice between measuring our economy the way we have been or measuring it this way. What mm-hmm. I'm talking about is in addition to all of the usual ways we measure the economy, you know, GDP growth and wages growth and unemployment, all of those things, are, I think, quite important. Uh, what I'm talking about is recognising uh, this opportunity that we have. Every Australian in one way or another has thought about their own well-being the last few years. Mm. 
I think people take a broader approach to that. Financial well-being is so central uh, to people's lives, but there are other ways as well. And I think, frankly, my predecessor and I have mm. a little, a little cheeky shot at uh, mm. Josh in well, the this essay. Has been a point of niggle. Yeah, yes. I don't think he understood that. You know, when he when he jumped up in question time with all the jokes about. Uh, Indian faiths and yoga and incense mm. and all the rest of it. I think mm. it was, uh, you know, he was he was pleased with it. That's great, um, but I think it missed. I think it missed something that's been going on in the minds of Australians mm. about not about that narrowly, but more broadly. You know, what does it actually mean? What what does my well being actually mean mm. amidst all of this turbulence and all of this vulnerability and uncertainty? What does it actually what actually matters most to me? And I want to do a similar kind of uh, thing when it comes to the national government. What matters most to us as a country and how do we track progress on it? Because if we don't do that, then it'll be pretty circular. Yeah, mm. we'll, we'll chase our tail on some of these sorts of things. And even though I've only been the treasurer for a little while, I've been knocking around this place for a long time and I've had this frustration for a long time. You know, we we there's a lot of circular kind of things, you know, where... You know, the things we care about as a country come in and out of the national conversation. We don't really kind of track it. We don't have a big national conversation about what we care most about. Mm. Not always, sometimes. Mm. Um, well, not enough. I think we, we, we completely agree on that point. Yeah. And, and in terms of Frydenberg, um, Josh Frydenberg, your predecessor, who was very, who said some very silly things about wellbeing, um, I think another friend of the pod, Josh, I think he would actually, I don't know if he'd ever admit it, but I think, I think he would reflect on what he said at the time where he said those utterly ridiculous things and, you know, how sensible or otherwise that was Um, because it was, I mean, it was capital D dumb at the time and it's looked even worse since. So anyway, hope you're well, Josh. Um, uh, Anyhow, let's just, because this is the problem when you and I get in the pod cave, we just start talking. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, a couple of things we need to get through quickly just about life and, uh, you know, what's on your desk at the moment. That was a very bad inflation number this week. Is, is that as bad as it gets or what do you think? Well, one of the things I like about this pod is that we don't beat around the bush uh, on it and, you know, headline inflation at, at 7.8 is, um, well, it's a shocker. Yeah. Uh, it's not a shock because it's exactly what the Treasury forecasts and it's not far off with the Reserve Bank forecast, but it's uh, obviously unacceptably high in expected and predictable ways, but that doesn't make it any easier for people paying these higher prices. Uh, we think it is likely to be the peak, mm. uh, but we won't know that for sure until we get the next quarter's numbers. Uh, but I think there's a broad expectation that that was the peak. But even as it moderates, even as we're kind of on the other side of the inflation mountain, you know, inflation will still be higher than we'd like for longer than we'd like. And so my job in the May budget, like it was in the October budget, is to try and find ways that we can help people without spraying money around in a way that actually adds to the inflation problem in the economy and is counterproductive. And so a lot of our thinking and with my colleagues on the expenditure review committee and in the cabinet is how do we do that? A number that bad, even though obviously forecast, and I think the bank's forecast was higher than Treasury's, wasn't it? It was, So not a shock, as you say, but a shocker um, that it'll invite a response from the bank. Right. I think everyone expects that. You know, I don't want to give you the the long uh, the long road thing about the, of, the, uh, but, of the Reserve Bank monologue, but yeah, but it's true. I mean, yeah. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make predictions, um, but uh, the market was already expecting more interest rate rises. This uh, outcome won't discourage that or or dissuade them from that view. Okay. Last question, and you did raise the budget 
is values-based capitalism consenting to make Australia's tax system less progressive? And if you speak stage three tax cuts, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, that's for the listeners, not Jim. Jim knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> I knew where you were coming yes. from. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, look, well, first of all, I mean, we haven't, you know, I'm not here to say we've changed our approach to that. We haven't. I think what matters is what we do right across the budget and what is consistent with, you know, a values-based approach is one of the main things that will be in the May budget will be energy bill relief. Mm. And that is deliberately targeted at people on fixed payments mm. and low incomes. Yep. Um, and, and that's a demonstration of our values. You know, when you've got $1.5 billion that you've allocated for cost of living relief when it comes to electricity bills, you know, that is going primarily to yeah. uh, people on low and fixed incomes yep. proudly. Yep. Uh, that's a demonstration of our values um, and in other ways as well. I'm also going to try and have a, a much bigger focus in this budget on entrenched disadvantage in, in communities like the one that I that I represent. So there are other ways to demonstrate our what approach. What other ways? Um, other, well, I'm re- responding to your qu- answering your mm. question. Mm. Um, I mean, if you if you think about, you know, I'm working with Amanda Rishworth, for example, on ways that we can identify... Uh, some of the most vulnerable communities in our country mm-hmm. and work out how do we empower local leaders and pool our resources and make a meaningful difference to some of the entrenched disadvantage that's mm-hmm. in our country. You know, you think about an unemployment rate, 3.5%, there's still people who are not accessing the opportunities of an economy that's creating uh, the fastest jobs growth for the first six months of the Albanese government than any first six months of any government on record. Yeah. Uh, and so we care about that. And so that's a demonstration of our values. And I'm hoping to be able to say something working with colleagues on that in the May budget, but but other ways too. Uh, the Energy Bill Relief will respond to the Economic Inclusion Committee that we set up around mm. the end of last year. There's a whole bunch of ways. Well, how dare you drop that in the last, last well, two minutes? Well, on, the, on disadvantage... When you're in opposition, you say, you give a bunch of speeches and you hope that somebody picks up and runs with them. One of the ones that I did in opposition to at ACOS mm. was about this. Mm. Now, this is a decade-long passion of mine. Oh, I know. Which yeah. is to recognise yeah. that if you want to shift the needle on poverty and disadvantage, and, and it's such a big national challenge, yeah. the best way to start is to find out where those challenges are most acute. Mm. And I'm fortunate to represent the community that I represent, but it's got its fair share of challenges in sure. this front. Yeah. And for a long time, you know, I've, 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 you know, in your quiet moments, you know, you're on a plane scribbling notes to yourself, or you're running in the morning, or you're doing something, and you have these thoughts. And, and in my mind, I have always thought that if I get a crack at a job like the one that I have now. Uh, and I know Amanda and others think the same way. You know, if you want to shift the needle, the best way to shift the needle on entrenched disadvantage is to go where it's most prevalent. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of great work going on around the community in the philanthropic sector and in other places mm. around this. Uh, and we want to show we want to show some leadership here if we can. And I, I am front running a bit, and I feel uh, now that you've shown an interest mm. in this and picked me up on it. This is something I care deeply about. Oh, look, I, I, I know. Um, and, and obviously, you know, there's something you work through in the budget context. I'm not expecting you to just unfurl the entire landing points for me today, but I'm more than intrigued. And it's uh, and some of the uh, sort of areas that Michael Trail's been involved with is very much in this yes. 
area. Yes. So that's a nice squaring of the circle between a monthly essay and what might be coming in the budget. Yes. Anyway, as a friend of the pod, Jim, of course you will return and we will talk about, you know, this project of yours in some more detail. I'm very I would return daily if you'd have me, if your <laughs> listeners would tolerate that. No, no, no. I'm very I'm very interested in where your mind's going on that. So uh that lots to talk about and you know, yet another thing you've got to do over the next six months. So um thank you for <laughs> thank you for finding time. Thank you to you guys for listening. I gather that Apple uh, rated this podcast one of its much listens uh, in 2022, and that's because a lot of you are listening and talking about it and sharing it and enjoying the conversational tempo of this whole exercise. So I'm really seriously delighted by that. So continue to share, tell your friends about it, etc. You know what to do. Uh, we will be back with another episode next week. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.